It's a beautiful spring evening in Tampa, Florida, and Joan Rogers and her two teenage daughters, 17-year-old Michelle and 14-year-old Christy, are on a sunset cruise offered to them by 43-year-old Oba Chandler, a known tour guide known for his twilight cruises across the Tampa Bay area. As the sun sinks below the bay, things took a darker turn when Chandler begins to tie up Christy and gag her with duct tape over her mouth. This is Terror on Tampa Bay, a double trouble detective story. Hey, hi, hello, and happy new year, and welcome back to the Double Trouble Detectives podcast. And tonight we're recording live from Tampa, Florida, and we'll be talking about one of Tampa's most notorious serial killers, the murders of Joan Rogers and her two daughters by Oba Chandler. Sadly, these women were simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. Due to this, we have to place a trigger warning on this episode for intense themes of sexual violence, murder, and unnerving situations. If any of these make you uncomfortable, feel free to stop the episode and listen when you feel comfortable. With our trigger warning out of the way, we're ready to begin. Before we talk about Roger's family's, the Roger family murder, we'll need to take a deep dive into Chandler's childhood and early criminal history. So, Pat, were there any warning signs that he might have been a, quote, disturbed individual, end quote? Yes, actually. According to the Hillsborough County records, when Chandler was only 14, he was known to steal and carjack people's vehicles, which led him to sell them at cheap prices to make a quick buck. Throughout his childhood, he was arrested at least 30 times for various offenses, including possession of counterfeit money, loitering, burglary, kidnapping, armed robbery, and indecent exposure, all of which occurred before he turned even 18. In one case, Chandler broke into a young couple's house in which he had the woman stripped down into her underwear as he rubbed her genitals with the barrel of his 23 caliber revolver that he had on him. Oh my god, that is disturbing. Jesus Christ. Now we'll be discussing the murder of the Rogers family. On May 28, 1989, 47-year-old Joan Rogers and her two daughters, Christy and Michelle of Wilshire, Ohio, drove down to Florida for their first real vacation together as a family since they worked constantly on their dairy farm without any sort of break. Hillsborough County authorities theorized that on June 1st, Joan became lost on their way home from Orlando and had to decide to spend a day in Tampa as they sorted things out. As they searched for their hotel, Chandler suddenly appeared and asked if they needed any assistance. Joan asked if he actually knew the direction to the day's inn they were staying at, to which Chandler replied that he in fact did know as he wrote the directions down on a flyer they got. He also asked them if they had any plans for the night, to which Joan said that they didn't. Chandler subsequently offered them a sunset crude for three across Tampa Bay, which Joan and the girls immediately accepted his offer of meeting him at the Country Campbell Causeway. Whoa. That's a major red flag for me right there. I mean, you have a random ass guy who I don't know asking if I need help finding a place to stay and and then offer me a random cruise. I'd personally speed the hell away. Anyways, 
A roll of Canon Super 8 film later discovered at the day's end by authorities showed that the last roll of film showed that the, the last picture and video were taken around 7.30 p.m., which was right at sunset. It is believed that the Rogers family boarded Chandler's boat somewhere between 8.30 and 9, 9 o'clock p.m., since according to testimony given by the medical examiner, Dr. Edward Karakin said that rigor mortis or the stiffening of the body af after death set in at approximately eight, three in the morning the next day. All three bodies of the Rogers family were found floating underneath the Sunshine Skyway three days later. They were successfully identified after fingerprints found in the hotel bathroom matched the prints taken at the crime scene. As the Coast Guard recovered the corpses, they just observed that all three women were floating face down, their necks bound in a sailor's knot, nude from the waist down, and their feet were fitted with concrete shoes. According to the autopsy report, all three victims were alive when thrown into the bay and that their lungs were flooded with water. Investigators theorized that the reason for the concrete shoes and the placement of the rope on their necks was to cause them either to die of asphyxiation as their bodies sunk to the bottom of the bay, never to be seen again. However, due to the fact that the bodies were in early the early stages of decomposition, became bloated from the amount of nitrogen and oxygen that they had in their system and floated to the surface of the bay as a result. On June 8th, a maid working at the Days Inn stated to authorities that the room that the Rogers had stayed in hadn't actually been disturbed. The be beds were clean and made when she got in there. By June 13th, all the Rogers women had been buried in a, in, a, in a local plot and a funeral was held for them, in which over 300 family members flew into attendance as their coffees were lowered into the cold earth. Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. They were there for four hours before they met Chandler at the dock. The Rogers' car, a 1984 Oldsmobile Calais with Ohio license plates, was found at the Campbell Causeway, confirmed that they left on the boat with Chandler. Unfortunately, this is the point when the case went cold due to the sheer amount of dead and useless tips people were giving to the police. Three long and grueling years later, Tampa authorities received their biggest break yet. An anonymous tip came from a 24-year-old Canadian woman from Saskatchewan who said that she was raped by a man matching Chandler's description two weeks before the Rogers family murder. On September 24, 1992, three years after the death of Joan and her daughters, Oba was arrested for their deaths after his ex-wife gave Tampa police a, fo a work form that Chandler had signed for their home after the handwriting matched the unknown handwriting found on Joan's brochure. At long last, we can finally give some well-deserved justice for the Rogers family. Well, actually, it isn't over just yet. Throughout his tumultuous trial, Chandler kept throwing metaphorical spaghetti at the wall, hoping to the fact it would stick. Spoiler alert, it did not. He said that although, yes, he did meet the Rogers family and gave them the directions to their hotel, he never saw them until news coverage of the crime appeared in the media and that he was in the Tampa Bay area at the time of the murders and was on his boat alone. Prosecutors discovered that throughout the night he had made three separate calls via the sea phone to the Coast Guard for, 
for the distress. Ugh, I absolutely hate it whenever killers use the, oh yes, I was there, but yeah, I was, I have absolutely no clue where I was that night. It makes me sick. I totally agree with you, and you have every right to be upset about it. It's sickening and disgusting how they deflect and treat the truth as if it's nothing and that these people were mere pawns in their game. According to the Coast Guard, however, they never received any sort of distress call from Chandler that night, nor any boats matching his his description in their vicinity. A mechanic who later testified for the prosecution stated on record, quote, in his... Mr. Chandler's boat, a bay liner, had his fuel lines directed upwards and thus would make a chance for a fuel leak certainly impossible. Also, the choice of a poor adhesive, in our case, a roll of duct tape, would certainly be dissolved had the fuel lines been remained intact. When pressed on where he was from 1 to 5 a.m., he remarked that he couldn't exactly place his movements. Finally, on November 4th, 1994, almost full, six full years after the murders, Chandler was sentenced to death for the murders. In a desperate attempt to, for a lesser crime, he said that the rape of the Canadian witness was actually consensual sex, and thus the argument of him being a sexual deviant was completely invalid, and that he must have a retrial. As Chandler awaited his fate, the life he built up crashed and burned after his ex-wife got full custody of his children. Worse yet, he was also convicted for the 1982 death of a 29-year-old Jane Doe, who was found face down floating on Anna Marie Island. In 2011, this Doe was identified as Amy Hurst. He continuously appealed and failed to get a lesser sentence for the murders until 2007, where he, when he seemingly just gave up his, quote, fight. Susan F. Schaefer, the judge who presided over Chandler's case, said of him in a 2011 interview with the Tampa Bay Times that Chandler was, quote, a man with no soul, end quote, and that his, quote, case was the worst case as far as factually and as far as a defendant without saving grace that I have ever handled. And I have represented plenty of people who were not necessarily the best of individuals, end quote. Well, that is beyond disturbing and it's scary to comprehend. The fact she calls him an individual who is beyond repair is terrifying. I know, but that's not the worst part. During the 1994 trial, juror Evelyn Colloway said that, quote, he would scare some of the the other jurors when he would sit and stare at you and have a stupid grin on his face, which would absolutely make your skin crawl. On October 10th, 2011, then-Governor of Florida, Rick Scott, signed off on Chandler's death warrant, sending his execution for November the 15th. On the day Chandler was set to die, his lawyer, Baya Harrison, remarked, He is not not putting a lot of pressure on me to go running around at the end to find some magic way out. He is not trying to make a scene. He is not trying to bemoan the legal system. What 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 he is trying to do is, he told me this, if there is some legal way that can prevent him from being executed, he would like me to do what I can reasonably can. Harrison also stated that his client suffered from high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, kidney failure, failure, and arthritis, all of which could make the the death via lethal, via lethal injection very difficult. By 4.05 p.m., Chandler had been executed at the Florida State Prison in Railford, which is 25 minutes outside of Tallahassee. His last recorded words on record were, 
recorded as Kiss My Rosie Red Fat Ass. After the execution, his family had varying reactions to his death. One of his daughters, Valier Troxwell, said, quote, I believe they executed an innocent man. I don't believe that my father alone could have pulled off such a heinous crime. It would have been more than one person. The palm print would prove that he did meet them and gave them the directions, but it didn't mean that he killed them. Based on that alone, the prosecution had an extremely weak case, end quote. Chandler's son, Jeff, also agreed with his sister, saying, quote, I truly believe that he was tried and convicted by the media long before he was on trouble, on trial. The media pretty much convicts you as soon as the flashbulbs flash and the shutter f- f- fires, end quote. However, his youngest daughter, Suzette, was completely on the other side when she stated that her father was, quote, a monster getting everything that he deserved, end quote. As if this case couldn't get it any more bizarre, on February 25th, 2014, investigators revealed that Chandler's DNA matched the genetic profile developed from a semen sample from a from the crime scene of a 20-year-old of 20-year-old Ivelez Barrios Bergiwaz, who was found raped and her thorax slashed by a bloody switchblade on November 27, 1990, in Coral Springs. Ivelez was a newlywed who worked at a sporting goods store and always drove a 1985 Ford Tempo. Prosecutors believe that Chandler stalked Berrios for three days, slashed the car's tires, and then subsequently offered to replace her tires for free, in which he subsequently kidnapped her. Sadly, only three hours after she was declared missing, her nude and broken body was found stuffed in an industrial mailbox by two men who were returning home from a fishing trip. Berrios Berguiz's body was found to have 32 ligature marks on her wrists, legs, throat, and hips with brown duct tape on her head and mouth. And that's all, folks. The story of Ova Chandler is finally over. For our research, we read Tourist Trapped, Ova Chandler and the Murder of the Rogers Family by Fred Shrum, Death Cruise by Don Davis, and finally Angels and Demons, The Last Days of Ova Chandler by Thomas French. DDT is written, directed, produced, and edited by Pat McLaughlin, with research conducted entirely by me, Colin McLaughlin. If you're on your phone, please, if you're on Spotify, please give us a five-star rating. It really helps us out. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, however, please give us that five-star rating and also write what we can do to improve, because we love hearing back from you, the listener. Until next crime, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye.